Good morning, Jono. How are you? Yeah, doing doing well. Uh, by the look of it, you've taken this Roman theme seriously, and uh, you've you've <laughs> teleported yourself to to Rome, which is uh, in, in the inside the Colosseum. Extraordinary, considering border controls. Um, yeah, well, uh, look, thank you for uh, reading God's word to us. I'll hand over to you now to uh, to read for us uh, from Romans chapter one. Thanks. Uh, the reading today is Romans chapter one, verses one through to seventeen from the NIV. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who, as to earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him, We received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it was written, the righteous will live by faith. Good morning, everyone. Uh, In case uh, we've not met, my name is Ben. And I have the joy and privilege of serving as one of the ministers at our Camden Valley Anglican Churches. Uh, Ian, thank you, brother, for reading the Word of God to us, this very grand and majestic introduction to the book of Romans. Uh, I'm about to, uh, uh, to preach my sermon on that chapter, but just a couple of preliminaries. Uh, first of all, I want you to know I really appreciate and we really appreciate you guys being patient with us as we had a lot of technological issues this morning. Uh, the second thing is that uh, uh, Jono, who was on beforehand, was absolutely right when he says he doesn't normally dress like that. His shirt is normally blue, uh, but it was red this morning. Uh, other than that, he's perfectly normal. Uh, third... Uh, Because this is God's Word, I'm going to lead us all very briefly in prayer, which I'm going to be honest is as much for myself as for anyone else. Let us pray briefly and then we'll get stuck into this part of God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us in your Word, the Bible, 
Father, we pray that you would keep the technology going for us this morning so that all of us together uh, can go through your word and apply it to our lives. Uh, Thank you that you're sovereign and in control of all things and we can always trust and rely and depend on you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel is God's ultimate message to humanity. Its subject is Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. And the gospel defines and undergirds genuine Christianity. Get the gospel right and your Christianity is biblical. Get the gospel wrong and you have a warped or a false Christianity. The letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Rome contains the fullest and most detailed exposition of God's gospel. The early church recognized this. And indeed, if you read it, it's really easy to to recognize it yourself. And that's why Paul's letter to the Romans is the first letter included in the New Testament, even though chronologically there were other letters written before it. Paul's subject is the gospel. The word gospel occurs six times in the introduction and it's the gospel that is given by God. It's God's gospel, God's message to humanity that Paul is writing about. Yet Paul will also refer to it as my gospel because the gospel that came from God is the message that Paul has embraced and believes and proclaims. And whoever would read this letter, myself included, is implicitly invited to ask themselves the question, is this my gospel? Is the message I've believed and embraced the same message God has given? Uh, It's an important question for each of us to consider because Paul's purpose in writing the letter to the Romans is to see Christians established. That is to see Christians built up and strengthened in their faith. And the way Christians are established is by growing in their learning and application of God's gospel. Paul's closing statement right at the very end of the letter begins with, Now to him who is able to to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is where the letter's going. This is what Paul has in mind as he writes to establish Christians in their faith through this very careful, very detailed, as you might say, very high definition explanation of the gospel. So if you want to grow and be established as a Christian, or even if you want to know what it truly is to be a Christian, I hope and pray that as we go through the the book, and including now the, the introduction to this grand letter, we can all truly ask of ourselves, is this my gospel? Now the letter begins, as Ian read for us, with the words, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Paul's introduction of himself here with his name and his occupation could easily be seen as embarrassingly 
laughable. The fact that Paul was born as a Roman citizen and grew up in the reputable city of Tarsus and trained under the great first century rabbi, the Rabbi Gamaliel, and was descended from the Hebrew tribe of Benjamin, a learned Pharisee and a religious leader. None of that gets mentioned. In terms of his education, Paul was easily the equivalent of a PhD graduate. Applying today's standards, he could have rightly introduced himself as something like the Reverend Dr. Paul of Tarsus, a descendant of Benjamin. And if he identified himself like that, everyone would know he is a very important man with great authority and they would take his words very seriously. But what does Paul do? He introduces himself as a servant. And that's a nice way of saying slave. The words are identical in the original. The great first letter of the New Testament expounding God's gospel in high definition is written by a slave. But for those with eyes to see, that is a glorious title and we'll soon find out why. As is the case for all genuine Christians, Paul is a slave of Christ Jesus. He is not in charge nor in control of his own life. He was purchased, as all Christians are, by God and therefore is owned by Jesus Christ, by definition, therefore, a slave. And Paul's master gave him a special task. Jesus has, can you see, called him to be an apostle. The word apostle means literally a sent one. In Paul's day, you could be sent as a representative of a ruler to speak on his behalf and to accomplish whatever purpose he had in mind. Paul is set apart as an apostle. And the way he represents Jesus is by declaring the gospel of God. You may or may not know that the word gospel basically means good news, an important public announcement. There is an important public announcement that God himself has given to the world, which is why there's such a thing as the gospel of God and why Jesus set apart particular people to announce it in the first place. So then, what is the gospel of God that Paul has been sent to announce and to proclaim and to explain? Well, verse 2. It is the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that is a mouthful. But I'm sure you can all see that whatever God's gospel is, firstly we can say that it was long anticipated. It was promised beforehand. Now I felt like the definitive answer on whether and when my kids could physically return to school was long anticipated and it depended on the words of politicians and professionals. God's gospel was anticipated for a slightly longer time than that uh, and it was done through the announcements of many of his messengers who we call prophets. Though it wasn't through the announcements verbally of the prophets, but of their words 
written down. That is, as you can see, the Holy Scriptures. And thankfully, we have those Holy Scriptures easily available to us. It's called the Old Testament. The background and the context for God's gospel is not the people and the culture of the first century, nor our, what we think is a good interpretive effort. It is the writings of the Old Testament, the Holy Scriptures. Secondly, the subject of this gospel, as you can see clearly, verse 3, is God's Son, capital S. Another way you might say that is God the Son. You see, we know from the New Testament, taken collectively, that God is a complex unity. He is the one God who yet exists as three persons, as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is that eternal God, the Son. But here's a really confusing thing that Christians struggle to understand. The eternal God, the Son, for a time, chose to have an earthly life. And that's how we know Paul is talking about the eternal Son and then uh, something else. He chose to have an earthly life. And in that earthly life, he was appointed the Son of God. God the Son became the Son of God. They are two different things. And you can understand why Christians get confused about this. Jesus was always and is always God the Son, but he was not always the Son of God. So I'm going to explain this as best I can. Our world is full of kingdoms and empires and democracies, structures of human rule. But of course, all human rule is ultimately corrupted. That's why we have a democracy, because we know that all human rule is ultimately corrupted, so we balance out the power. And that's because every human heart is corrupted. We all have a deep-seated, hardwired condition called sin. And uh, we're actually going to hear about this very clearly next week, and I look forward to next week's uh, uh, sermon. But our natural tendency, though we all underestimate it or deny it, is to be in total rebellion against God. On the individual scale, we see that all people have a tendency to live how they see fit. I'm the boss of my own life. I'm in charge of myself. And that, of course, is only ever in defiance of God's rule. God's just punishment is to limit our rebellion at least and that's limited through death which is why the human mortality rate, COVID or otherwise, still sits at 100%. Now on the grand scale we see that human kingdoms, structures of human rule and governance operate in a collective defiance of God. Thus they also are limited by death especially the death of the ruler. But God himself promised to intervene in the pattern of this fallen world with its individual and its corporate sinfulness. God promised to establish his own kingdom. And unlike any earthly kingdom, his would be eternal. In those holy scriptures by the prophets in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God spoke through the prophet Nathan to the great king of Israel, King David. 
David had wanted to build a temple for God, but God said, nah, no thanks. But while we're on the subject, here's what I'm going to do for you, David. And here's the words that are on the screen. He says, David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, i.e. <coughs> when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. But what's going on here in the Old Testament? Well, God said, hey, David, I'm creating a dynasty, a lineage, if you like, in Israel of their kings, starting with you. The pattern would be that when David had a son, he would become the next king in Israel. because David would die and then his son would take his place. And when that son had grown up and ruled and then died, well, he in turn would have another son and that person would take the place as the next king in Israel and so on and so on. But because Israel was God's kingdom, he would refer to its king not only as a son or a descendant of David, but also as my son, that is, a son of God. And so King David was a son of God. He was a Christ. King Solomon was a son of God, a Christ. King Rehoboam was a son of God, a Christ, and so on and so on. But the fact that each king died and needed a new one to replace him suggested that God's own kingdom was still subject to the results of sin in a fallen world. If God was going to establish his kingdom forever, which he'd promised to do, into eternity, well, it would make sense that sooner or later, the throne would be occupied by a king whose rule would somehow not be ended by death. David himself had some concept of this. And being a prophet, David declared that God would not let his holy one see decay. Somehow there would be a king in the line of David who would not be subject to death. Someone who would not just be a son of God or a Christ, but the son of God, the Christ. The Israelites knew this was super important. As a matter of fact, uh, me having a Jewish upbringing, I remember singing songs about King David, 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 Melech, Israel, David, the king of Israel, even though he's long dead. We still rightly expect and anticipate a king in the line of David who will be called God's son, but one who would live forever, that is, the son of God or the Christ. When Jesus, the eternal God the Son, came into the world, he was born into the line of David. Because he was raised from the dead, it became clear that he could occupy David's throne forever. Do you see how God the Son became the Son of God through his resurrection from the dead? This is how the Apostle Paul first explains the gospel message in Romans. That is a message regarding God's Son, who is eternal, who yet had an earthly life, 
and was resurrected so as to become the Son of God. And I've got to ask, I wonder if you and I would naturally first think of the gospel like this. Currently, in Australia, we've got a Prime Minister who will serve until his term or terms are, are over. We've also, we're also part of a constitutional monarchy whereby Queen Elizabeth is our monarch. Queen Elizabeth will die, and I'll be sad because I like the Queen, but she will die and her rule will be handed over to someone else, which apparently is a bit of a contentious issue. But there's another kingdom, another structure of rule that some of us, and I would hope and pray all of us, are a part of. It's a kingdom that God himself has established and its ruler will never die. He was raised from death. He is currently on the throne right now and he is in power right now. And those who join his kingdom are those who, just like him, will come to glory rather than shame on the other side of death. For the Apostle Paul though he could easily identify as the great reverend Dr. Paul of Tarsus of the tribe of Benjamin, it's infinitely greater and more significant for him to be a slave of the eternal Christ Jesus, as it is the case for any and every genuine Christian. And so I ask you, now that you've heard the announcement the good news that God the Son has become the Son of God, the Christ, through his resurrection from the dead. Have you joined his kingdom? Are you one of his slaves? Are you ruled over by Jesus? And do you see that as far more wonderful and significant than any other kind of significance this dying world might afford you? If you're not sure where you stand, the next section in Paul's letter will be very helpful. From verse 5, through him, that's through Jesus, says Paul, we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Uh, so look at the words, what we've received is grace, as you can see, because through, uh, though we, we naturally live in defiant rebellion against God and therefore deserve to be shut out of his eternal kingdom, the Son of God gave his own life to bear the punishment for all our sin. He paid the price in full so that you and I might be fully forgiven. Uh, we're going to get to that most glorious truth in a, a couple of weeks' time. Instead of giving us what we deserve he gives us the free gift of forgiveness. That's what grace means, a free and undeserved gift. And notice, we've also been given apostleship. We're not apostles, capital A apostles, in the sense that Paul and Peter and the Twelve were apostles, but we are nonetheless sent into the world by Jesus to represent him by calling all the Gentiles, which is another way of saying all the nations, to join Jesus' kingdom. To put it in higher definition, we're to call them to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Uh, with this little expression here, hopefully in your Bible you'll have a footnote that says something like the obedience that is faith or something similar. Because 
you can't genuinely trust God, that is, you can't genuinely have faith in God and not obey him. And you can't genuinely obey God without trusting in him. Throughout Romans, Paul will speak of those who are obedient to the gospel, just as he'll speak of people who have faith in Jesus. To claim to have faith in Christ, yet to not live in obedience to him, is a self-deception. To claim to be obedient to God, but not actually have faith in Christ, not actually trust God, well, that's an impossibility. Now, it's true that you can say the gospel message as Jesus died to pay for your sin. That's a glorious truth, and we are going to get there in the, the third chapter. Paul will get there in the third chapter. But that's not where Paul starts. Paul starts with the eternal God, the Son, has been raised to become the permanent ruler of God's eternal kingdom. He has been appointed the Son of God. So being ruled over by King Jesus, that is living in obedience to him and trusting him, is the obvious telltale sign of a Christian. And notice also here Paul speaks in terms of ownership. Verse 6, genuine Christians can identify as those who belong. To Jesus Christ. So, hi everyone, my name's Ben and I belong to Jesus Christ. I trust in him, therefore I seek to obey him. I am his slave and as his slave, he would have me announce the gospel to see others come to obedience. Also, as his slave, and we find this out uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, he would have me serve other people especially the other people who belong to him. That's why if someone claims to trust in Jesus, yet they're not committed to regular church, that is regular gathering with other Christians, which is basically the best opportunity we have to serve other Christians, it's doubtful that they belong to Christ. If someone claims to trust in Jesus, yet their lives are not markedly different on account of their seeking to obey him, it's doubtful that they actually belong to Christ. This is one of the reasons why as Christians we mourn the fact that we can't be physically churching together at the moment. But by the same token, even the most defiant sinner, even the most obnoxious person who fails morally on a daily basis, as I fail morally very regularly, and who yet mourns their sin and continues struggling to serve Jesus and his people, well, they are a treasured fellow slave in his kingdom, which I personally find very reassuring because I often fail at obeying Jesus. For this reason, Paul can identify his audience in Rome as holy people. Look at verse 7. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Where do you stand in terms of your faith and obedience? Do you identify proudly as someone owned by Jesus, someone who longs to obey him and mourns when you fail to obey? That would be the sign that you have saving faith in Christ, that you too are one of his holy people. And by the way, the word translated holy people is exactly the same word for saint. As a matter of fact, in an older Bible translation, it'll say saint, saints. 
The idea that you've got to die and somehow perform a miracle to become a saint is all completely made up. It's nowhere in the Bible. In the Bible, all Christians are made holy by the blood of Jesus. All Christians are called saints. The thing that makes you a saint is your trust in Jesus, which can clearly be seen by your willingness to serve him in obedience. And that was certainly something that was true of the Christians in Rome. Paul continues in verse 8 by saying, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. Notice that for these Christians in Rome, it was obvious to anyone and everyone that their lives had changed, that they now lived with faith in Jesus, which of course could be seen in their obedience to him. But Paul rightly assumes that these Christians need to continually become more and more established in their faith. Hence, he prays that God will make it possible for him to visit them. And if you've read through the book of Acts, you'll know that Paul's prayer was eventually answered. Paul knew that being face-to-face with this church of Christians would be beneficial for their strengthening as well as his. And that's because he had a powerful spiritual gift to give them. Verse 11, I long to see you, says Paul, that that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. Now, would you believe that this is actually the only verse where the term spiritual gift occurs in the New Testament? And coming from the great apostle Paul, who we know had been invested with power to heal the sick and even raise the dead, we might think that whatever Paul has in mind to give these Roman Christians is absolutely spectacular and extraordinary. And we'd be right, because it is. What is the spiritual gift that Paul wants to give these Romans? Well, verse 12, that is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. Notice Paul assumes that a spiritual gift being imparted is simply by Christians being together in person and seeing each other's faith in action. The ministry of attendance, I like to call it, is a highly valuable ministry. And showing up at a Christian gathering as a Christian is exercising a great spiritual gift. The fact that you show up regularly is your faith in action, which makes for mutual encouragement. But of course, that's not the end of it. The way Paul puts his faith into action, especially, is by doing the thing that especially strengthens the church, namely, preaching the gospel. So verse 14, Paul says, I am obligated, both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish, basically to anyone and everyone. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel, also to you who are in Rome. These Christians have heard the gospel and they've become a church, they've been saved. What does Paul want to do? He wants to impart a great spiritual gift to encourage them and to have him encouraged. What's that gift? To preach the gospel. Now, I remember once, many years ago, as part of being involved with a Christian group at the Wollongong University, uh, where I was studying, we had this annual camp called the National Training Event. 
We'd spend some time learning from the Bible at a conference. Then we went to various churches to be extra hands helping with outreach around Christmas. For accommodation, we'd get billeted with families from the churches that we were staying with. Now, just before we all went out from the conference bit to be billeted at various churches, one of the Bible teachers at the conference, who happens to be one of my all-time favourite Bible teachers, told us to make sure we shared the gospel message with the church families who were hosting us. Initially, I was a bit worried about that. Because even though being a member of a church does not automatically make you a Christian, I figured that if they're the kind of families who are happy to have a random university student stay with them to help their church do evangelism, well, there's a high likelihood that they are. So maybe it would be a bit insulting for a young whippersnapper like me to tell them the gospel because it might imply that I don't think they're saved. But then this great Bible teacher said something that directly addressed my concerns, which I immediately knew to be true and which I've never forgotten. He said, tell your host family the gospel. Because if they are not Christians, they need to hear it. And if they are truly Christian, they will delight to be reminded of it yet again. The gospel message strengthens and establishes God's holy people. And I'm sure that that's the Apostle Paul's attitude right here. And especially so because of what he says in the final two verses of our passage for this morning, which are easily the key part of our text. Verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, it's easy and right to think of the power of God in his act of creating and sustaining the universe. It's easy and right to think of the power of God in divine interventions, miraculous healings and unexpected victories. But if you really want to know the power of God, you see it in the gospel message that does the most extraordinary thing of bringing about salvation. No human has ever been able to somehow achieve the righteousness required to be considered holy and acceptable when they come face to face with their maker. But in the gospel, the righteousness of God has been revealed. And it's a righteousness that is now available to all people, Jew and Gentile, by trust, which is exactly what the word faith means, same word. Such righteousness, we are told, is first for the Jew in that it is most readily applicable to the Jews. You see, the Jews were entrusted with those holy scriptures, the Old Testament, which we call the Tanakh. So their culture and religion was, and in some limited ways still is, one of expectation. Their holy scriptures contained the promised beforehand stuff, the pre-gospel writings. So they are the most natural recipients of the good news. And as we'll be reminded of much later in Romans, God has made certain promises to his people Israel, which still stand today. But there's only one God, 
And the eternal kingdom he has established by his risen son is a kingdom for all who come to faith in him. And those who come to faith are those who live by faith. Just like the church in Rome, the obedience that comes from faith means that when someone becomes a member of Jesus' eternal kingdom, it's really obvious that they belong to Jesus. Now, this great thesis statement from Paul is going to be unpacked in a way all throughout the rest of the letter to the Romans, which we'll keep going through in coming weeks. But for the time being, the obvious thing I'd like us all to ask ourselves is the same question I posed at the beginning. We've heard something of the gospel of God. His eternal son, Jesus, was raised to become the permanent ruler over God's eternal kingdom. That the righteousness required to enter this kingdom is the righteousness of God, which is given to all who have trust in him, that is to all who have faith. And that responding with faith is also responding with obedience, the obedience that comes from faith. That is God's gospel which he continues to announce to humanity. The question is, is this your gospel? It's important to know because this gospel is the power of God for salvation and the means by which we are continuously established.